It was 1973, and Karen Nussbaum and uh, Ellen Cassidy were secretaries at Harvard University. They worked in the office, and they had gotten sick of it. They felt they weren't being respected. They felt they were being underpaid. They had a whole long list of things they were upset about, and they decided to do something about it. So they got together and began talking what were their concerns. And then they invited eight other women there in the office to come and be with them. And these ten women sat down and made up a list of grievances they wanted to take to the head of personnel there at Harvard. It was things like, we want to raise. One of the chants became, raises, not roses. They always get roses for Secretary's Day. No, no, we want raises. They wanted health care. They wanted a pension. They wanted to be treated with respect. As one of the ten women said, we are referred to as girls from our first day until the day we retire without a pension. It really didn't seem fair. So the ten of them got together. They came up with their concerns, their demands. They met with the head of personnel, and nothing changed. So they rented a small office there at the YWCA in Boston, and there they began working in this small office, creating a newsletter, talking about issues, talking about how women need to find a way to rally together, to stand up for, for fairness in the office place. They got to starting, and so they had the newsletter, so they decided to call themselves a name, and they chose the name 9 to 5. We are the people who work 9 to 5, and we deserve to be respected. They started going and standing outside of subway entrances there in Boston and handing out these flyers to try to rally women to say, we need to get together and stand up for some of these issues. And after they'd been doing that for a while, they called a meeting for anyone who wanted to come, and they were going to rally in downtown Boston. 150 women showed up, office workers, clerical workers. They started divvying up jobs, trying to figure out how can we get organized, what do we need to do. And they started studying labor laws. There were a lot of laws already on the books that obviously weren't being followed. They started working on these and what they could, and then they stumbled across a group called the Boston Survey Group. It wasn't publicized. It was kind of a secret group. It was a group that met about every six months, and it had representatives from each of the 40 largest employers there in Boston. And they would get together every six months to discuss what are we going to pay our girls and they would set the salaries, and they would then all pay the same. Well, that's illegal. I mean, you can't set a pay based on gender, and you can't set it all across for all these different companies. That's illegal. They started looking further, and they discovered that the pay that they were receiving was the third lowest of any major city in America. And Boston isn't that cheap of a place to live. So they started bringing it to light, and they started getting television public. And with all the publicity that came on, 
suddenly the group had to dissolve and these companies began giving raises to their secretaries of 10% and up, whatever each company decided they wanted to do. And these women, a part of 9 to 5, knew that this was just the beginning. Now it happened at a time when all across America there were things that were coming together. You had the women's liberation movement. People were marching in the streets, demanding equality and respect. You had the labor movement that was happening. You had the civil rights movement that was going on. But there was something else that happened. From 1970 to 1979, 12 million women entered the workforce. 12 million women all now coming on with expectations of how should we be treated and what is it that we want. They were a force to be reckoned with. And so you had this movement start happening. And, and so then this group 9 to 5 realized we don't just need to be in Boston. They started starting chapters. Atlanta, Cleveland, Houston, San Francisco, all over the country. You had these groups of women coming together in chapters of 9 to 5. There was a women's secretarial group to try to, to work for change. And they understood they could do it. They would have walkouts. Everybody comes to work, we're all there at 10 o'clock, and all the secretaries get up and leave the building. Work ground to a halt. They begin the walkouts, they begin the marches, just demanding, we want fair and equal pay. We want opportunities for promotion. We want health care. We want a pension program. We want an end to sexual harassment. Nine to five set up a sexual harassment hotline, one of the first of its kind. That There was somewhere that women could turn and call and get legal help and being told, what can you do? What is your rights? I mean, it was amazing. Well, that was going on in the 70s. It was Jane Fonda who was friends with Karen Nussman, Nussbaum. And, and so Karen was telling Jane all about the stories of what women said was happening in the workplace to them. And she was telling her about the great success they were starting to have with their groups 9 to 5. And so it was Jane Fonda and Patricia Resnick who made a trip out to Cleveland, Ohio to go and meet with one of the chapters of 9 to 5. And they met with 40 women who mainly were employed at uh, City National Bank. And they just came to sit down and said, tell us your stories. What do you experience? And the women started telling these stories of what life was like working in their office. And it was just hard to believe. And so Jane and Patricia sat there listening to this for a while, and finally Jane said, listening to your stories and what you lived through, do any of you ever have fantasies about how to kill your boss? <laughs> Forty hands went up in the room. And Jane simply said, tell me those fantasies. And so they started telling the fantasies they had about how to get even with their boss and get revenge. And they're writing them down. If you have ever seen the movie, if you've seen the musical, you know that part of it is about the three ladies having fantasies on how to get revenge. That's actual stories that came from the women in Cleveland, Ohio.
the things that you see in the musical and in the movie that they're dealing with are because of exact things that were being told by the women there in Cleveland, Ohio. They started working on this. They came back and it was Patricia Resnick who started working there on the story and they brought in Colin Higgins as well. And I want to read you what Jane Fonda said. What I found was that secretaries know the work they do is important, is skilled, but they also know they are not treated with respect. They call themselves office wives. They have to put gas in the boss's car, get his coffee, pick up his laundry, buy the presents for his wife and mistress. So when we came to do the film, we said to Colin Higgins, okay, what you have to do is write a screenplay which shows that you can run an office without a boss, but you can't run an office without the secretaries. So we set to work on the screenplay. And they had to decide. They started wrestling. Is this going to be a drama or a comedy? And they decided it needs to be a drama. And so they worked on it and worked on it. And then they finally realized if we do this as a drama, we sort of come off preachy, like we're on a soapbox. And I don't think people are going to listen to that. So they decided to do a comedy instead. They said, a comedy about serious issues made it easier for people to watch and made people aware of how sexism in the workplace is ridiculous and that people don't have to put up with it. They never dealt with the debate about discrimination. No, they just lifted it up and said, here's what's going on. And you couldn't help but look at it and go, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Now that they knew they were going to have a comedy about the important issues, it was Jane who wanted to put together the, the cast. She went to Lily Tomlin and said, I really want you to be one of these three office women. And then she went to Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton had never been in a movie before. She had never taken an, a day of acting classes in her life. But Jane just believed that Dolly Parton would be able to carry this off and would work well. And so Dolly agreed, with the condition that she could write the theme song, which they said, fine. So they began doing the filming, and there on set, Dolly was going from scene to scene, listening, watching, coming back to her trailer, working on tunes and words. And she found that she had long acrylic fingernails. And if she was trying to keep time, she found that smacking her nails actually made it sound just like a typewriter. And so she learned to keep time and started working on the song while playing her nails. In fact, if you go look at the song that gets recorded, well, in the end, It'll have all the different people who are doing Nails by Dolly Parton. <laughs> so she was beating her nails and working on the song. And finally she calls in Jane and Lily. And she says, I think I have a song and I want you to listen to it and tell me what you think. So she brings them in. She starts playing her nails and she sings. 
tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts flowing. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. My folks like me on the job from nine to five. Jane Fonda said, when they were there, just the three of them in this trailer, she said, the hair stood up on our arms. We got chills and we said, the movement has an anthem. And did it ever. The song was released about a month before the movie came out and it went to number one. Country, pop, and adult. A triple number one. It was a huge success because women across America were hearing a song that they related to. It really was the anthem for the movement. The movie grew out of a movement. That's what inspired it. It dealt with important issues, but did it where it was funny. So somehow we could listen and then learn how to respond. In the end, it came out in 1980. As I say, it was a huge success. It was the second largest bo grossing box office movie of the year. It was 29 years later. They came to Dolly Parton and said, we want to take the m movie and change it into a musical for Broadway. And it was Dolly Parton who wrote all the music and the lyrics for the Broadway musical 9 to 5. 29 years later, Things had gotten better, but we were still dealing with so many of the same problems. It opened in West End on London in 2019, two years ago. All you got to do is listen to the news, and you know we are still dealing with so many of the problems. Now, you know, when I watched the movie and the musical, my reaction was, these people need to learn the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Speak to others the way you want to be spoken to. If everybody was doing that, all the problems are solved. That's what our scripture lesson was about this morning from the book of Matthew, 7th chapter. We know that the Sermon on the Mount runs from the 5th chapter through the 7th chapter. Three full chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. Now most scholars say Jesus gave a Sermon on the Mount, but it probably wasn't all of this. He probably gave a sermon where he went up and I'm sure he had three points and a couple stories. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, he went up on the mountain and he gave his sermon, but it wouldn't have been this much and not this much meat. I mean, every couple of verses is such a significant teaching. And so what most scholars believe happened is this is kind of taking the best of Jesus and bringing it together in one sermon and kind of just putting it here so you're able to have a lot of meat in these three chapters. You pick out the one verse, seventh chapter, twelfth verse. Jesus said, so whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, we always think about the golden rule, but let's just jump to those last few words. For this is the law and the prophets. 
I mean, the Jews were very committed to following God's law. The law was the Big Ten by Moses, and then all the laws that developed on how to live those that you find in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, is kind of the law, and you need to know what to do, how to follow the laws to live a good life. And then hundreds of years later, the prophets came along to point out, you're not doing this, and you're not doing that, and you're not doing this. Here's what you need to do to follow all the law. And then Jesus comes along and he says, whatever you wish men would do to you, do so to them. And if you do that, well, you're going to be following all the laws and all the prophets. Is it that simple? Wow. To choose to live the golden rule and you would be following the laws and the prophets? It's really worth thinking about this morning. It's what I wanted us to stop and just to ponder and ask ourselves, am I speaking to others the way I want to be spoken to? Am I treating others the way that I want to be treated? I think Jesus understood that if we all lived the golden rule, it changed the world. And we know that's never going to happen but it doesn't let us off of our responsibility of living the golden rule. And we may not be able to change the whole world, but we can help to change our world. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to say two things today. <laughs> and I want to go back and look at Dolly's nine to five sermon, uh, sermon, her nine to five <laughs> song. That was a good sermon. And... Um, I want to just pull out a couple of lines that I think have a lot of truth. Dolly would write, Nine to five, as long as we're together, you know you and I will make it through whatever. You and I will make it through whatever. We need each other. That's what the movement nine to five discovered. Karen needed Ellen. And together they needed eight other women. And together they needed 150 women. There was power in numbers. But they needed others, just one-on-one -on -one and two-on-one, -on -one, just so that they could find the strength and the insight to try to work and make the world better, their world better. We need each other. It's what, the, what this movie and musical really is about. Three women, you have Violet, Dora Lee, Judy, they're all in different places in life. One has lost their husband to death. One is going through a divorce. We just heard that song. And one is happily married. So there are three very different women in different places in their life, and yet they need each other in order to confront this issue and to change things. Don't do it alone. you got to have each other. That was something that Dolly Parton certainly understood. You're going to have to have others. You're going to make it in this world. I, I, you know, I started working on the sermon series months ago, and when I go off on vacation uh, here in the summer, I, I just get to spend lots of time 
uh, listening to interviews, watching documentaries, reading different articles, so that I make sure that, that what I'm saying uh, is going to be correct. And one of the things that I really enjoyed studying was Dolly Parton. I learned a lot of things about her I did not know. I learned that Dolly Parton was actually born in Sevier County in the Smoky Mountains in eastern Tennessee, an incredibly poor county, one of the poorest places in the United States. She was born in a one-room house. It turned out that there were 12 children, 12. She was number four. In the end, um, her father was a, a, a farmer. He was illiterate, could not read nor write. Now, they were poor. But she started learning to sing. Where else? In church. Her family was very active in the church. She learned to sing in church. She was eight years old when her uncle gave her a guitar. And when he gave her the guitar, well, she learned to play it. And then there was this kind of fair going on. And she was able to go and play in front of an audience and sing. And she was so good and the people loved it so much, they kept saying, sing another one, sing another one. And she did it and she was just hooked. When she got through, she said to her uncle, I'm going to be a great star, ain't I? Now she felt like she'd found like what God was calling her to do. And so she did what any eight-year-old would do when you think you found your calling. She started praying about it, asking, God, if this is really what you want me to do with my life, then you're going to have to be my partner and help show me the way. And so she kept on singing. 18 years old, she graduated from high school. Next day, she moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And when you go back and study her life, you will see these partnerships that happened over and over again that really helped her move on through her career. And she would say it was that partnerships and with God that made it happen. But because she's such a person of faith and she lives by the golden rule, she also thought, how can I partner in a way to bless other people? How can I do that? She had started a foundation back in 1988, Dolly Parton Foundation. And she learned that it was there in Sevier County that the education was really struggling. The dropout rate in high school was 30 to 35 percent each year. That means only 65 to 70 percent of the kids were graduating. And Dolly knew, how are we ever going to raise up leaders to make the world better if that's the case? We need these kids in that education. So she had the foundation study it and discovered that kids were deciding in the 7th and 8th grade whether they would graduate from high school or not. That's where the decision was being made. So she came up with her own idea. In her own prayer time, she had an idea. She got permission and she invited all the 7th and 8th graders to Dollywood. They had a new auditorium they had opened up. They brought all these 7th and 8th graders and said, there's going to be a special presentation. Well, guess who made it? Dolly came in and she said, I, I have something I want to ask you. I want to ask every single one of you here, will you choose a buddy? You need to have a buddy. If you don't have one, can't find one, tell me, I'll get you one. She said, second, what I want to tell you was that if you'll graduate high school, I will personally write you a $500 check. The $500 today is good money. $500 30 years ago, that's a lot of money. 
$500 in Sevier County, Tennessee was a fortune. She had their attention and she said, but there is one other catch to it. If you graduate high school, I'll give you the $500 if your buddy graduates as well. And so I'm asking you to sign a contract today with your buddy and that you're going to say, I will support you and I'm going to hold you accountable and we're going to work together to graduate. So everybody had a partner. Four years later, when that eighth graders were stomach coming through to graduate, the graduation rate was about 95 percent. Five to six percent was all the dropouts they had. Something had changed. But they did it together with a partner, someone to help along the way. You know, every single one of us needs a partner, someone who is helping, caring, encouraging, making us accountable, someone helping us along the way. And how do you get a partner? If you treat others the way you want to be treated, if you speak to others the way you want to be spoken to, it's amazing how you start finding people who want to come together and partner. To be a good partner is how you find a good partner. We all need others to help us make it through. I think Jesus understood that. That's why he called us together to live by a golden rule. But secondly, Dolly would write in her song, working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by, it's all taking and no giving. Sometimes that's what it seems like in the world, it's all taking and no giving. It's certainly what it seemed like to the women who were working as secretaries in the 1970s in the offices across America. The companies, the bosses, there was a lot of taking, but there was very little giving. 50% salaries of men, no health care, pension, and on and on. That's again what the musical and the movie is supposed to be about. You have these three women, Violet, Dora Lee, Judy, and if you've seen it, you know that there's a part where Mr. Hart, their boss, who is truly a rat, well, they, they tie him up. They help him to go on an extended vacation at his home. And then they come back and take over the office. And what do they do? Well, they treat others the way that they had want to be treated. There can be flex time. We're going to have child care here at the office. You're going to get health care. You're going to have a pension. There's going to be respect. I mean, literally, they come back and the point is they live by the golden rule. That's how they run the office. Let's just treat others the way we wanted to be treated. And of course, what happens? Well, the office becomes more productive and it becomes incredibly successful. That's the lesson we're supposed to be seeing. They're treating others the way that they wanted to be treated. And it makes such a difference and it works. Well, when you live by the golden rule, it's not going to be just all about me anymore. If I'm trying to live the golden rule, it can't be all about taking and no giving. If you're living by the golden rule, it's going to be about giving. 
Dolly Parton is such a lady of faith. I, I didn't fully understand how much of a faithful lady she was, nor what a philanthropist she really was. She understood life isn't supposed to just be all about me getting. It's not all about me taking and no giving. No, she is someone who really is giving. She started the buddy program that I was telling you about. But while they were working on the buddy program and learning what was causing it, they discovered the first graders were really struggling. The first graders were getting behind as they started their education. And the problem was they didn't really have enough teacher help and there was a big debate in the county, what can we afford and what should we do or not? And they weren't doing anything. And so Dolly stepped in and said, I will hire two first grade teacher assistants for every first grade classroom in the entire county. And I will pay their salaries for the next two years. And if it works and things improve for our first graders, then I expect the school district to take it over. Well, she did. It did. And they did. So now she'd been working with the first graders, but several years had gone by, and now she had the kids about to graduate. And she knew some of their graduating, they could go to college and really change their lives. And so she came up with the idea and said, for all the schools, all the schools, if you can articulate your dream, and if you can articulate what the dream is and show how you're going to make it happen, I'll give you a $15,000 scholarship to go to college. Suddenly kids were going to college from Sevier County. Now, you know, the reason she started Dollywood in 1986 wasn't just to go make more money. She'd sold 100 million records. She didn't need more money. Now, she started Dollywood there in her area for economic means. It was jobs, jobs for all the people who lived there. It was going to be bringing revenue in from people all across the country and around the world. Revenue stream into one of the poorest counties in America, jobs for the people who were living there. And she was creating a place where families could come and have fun. But I loved it in Dollywood, in the midst of all that, in a, in a kind of a quiet place, she also built a chapel. It's Thomas Chapel, named after Robert F. Thomas. That chapel holds worship services every Sunday at Dollywood in the midst of all the going on. You see, what happened was, when she was born, of course she was born at home, one-room house, and her mother started having trouble and she started having trouble, and they thought they both were going to die. And it was her father who hopped on a horse and rode to town to go get the Methodist preacher. Because the Methodist preacher was also the doctor. And so they brought the Methodist preacher doctor back. He managed to save Dolly and her mother. And so she never forgot it. And she named the chapel Robert F. Thomas Chapel. After the Methodist minister doctor who saved her and her mother's life. And she put the chapel there in Dollywood because she knew that people are there to have fun and they're going to be having a great time riding rides and being with family. But just because you're having fun, you still carry your problems. And everybody carries their problems and hurt. And so if they want some time to step aside and be in the chapel and pray and to write their prayer request down, they can do that. 
You see, prayer has always been very important to Dolly. As that person of faith, wanting to partner with God, she likes to get up extra early in the morning when no one else is around and she takes time to pray, to talk to God, she said, and to listen. And that's when she gets so many creative ideas about things to do like buddy programs and the first graders or scholarships or whatever it might be. And she said sometimes she gets these really big ideas that just seem impossible. But she's learned, don't decide what is possible or impossible for God. Listen and then try and you'll see. And so one morning while she was in her prayer time, she had another idea. She'd been working with the first graders and the high schoolers and going to college and all these things. But what about the small infants and the children? The kids who haven't gone to school yet. She thought about the fact that her father couldn't read, as many could not in the county. She thought about the fact growing up she didn't have books. They couldn't afford them. And she thought, what if someone has a baby, if they could sign up and they were sent a book every month, age appropriate, that someone could read to their child and teach their children how to read and develop a love of reading all the way till they finally went to the first grade. And she would do that for every family in Sevier County. Now, that seemed like kind of a big, kind of impossible dream. But she really decided that's what she wanted to do. She called it Imagination Library. And so anybody who had a child could sign up and a book would be sent once a month all the way till they finally got into first grade. It was incredibly successful. People loved it. In fact, it was so successful that people at other places said, we'd like to do that. So other partners came alongside and other things started to happen. An imagination library spread all across the entire United States. And because it's doing so well here, well, it hopped the pond to go back and it spread through Great Britain, Ireland, down to Australia. Imagination Library today has given away 163 million books. It's impossible, but not with God. 163 million books and still going strong. You know, for Dolly Parton, it's an understanding that it isn't all about taking and no giving. You live by the golden rule. And if you live by the golden rule, then we're asking that question. Am I speaking to others the way I want to be spoken to? Am I treating others the way that I want to be treated? Because if I'm living by the golden rule, it will help us come together so together we confront the issues of life and this world and we will start giving to one another. If you and I live the golden rule, it won't be all about taking and no giving. No, we'll be giving and something's going to happen. If you're living by the golden rule, you're going to find that when you tumble out of bed and you stumble to the kitchen and you pour yourself a cup of ambition, you yawn and stretch and try to come to life, you jump in the shower and your blood starts pumping and out on the street the traffic starts jumping for folks like you and me on the job from 9 to 5. 
with joy in your heart and a smile on your face. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.